Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. Our latest bonus episodes look at Season 2 of David Fincher's Netflix serial killer series Mindhunter and the Stephen King adaptation It Part 2. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. It's very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here with... Scott Tobias. And... Keith Phipps. Jenny Vkoski couldn't be with us this week because of... Uh, she's apparently sick with something involving flames on the sides of her face. <laughs> but we'll do what we can to talk about these two game-based murder movies without her. Uh, hey, sorry to interrupt, but this is kind of urgent. We're friends, right? Yeah, I'd say so, sure. G- good friends. I would trust that question a lot more if you weren't holding a bloody lead pipe right now. Keith. So, you know the old saying, friends will help you move, but good friends will help you move the bodies? I've got kind of a good friend situation going on here right now. Hey guys, what are we talking about? Oh, oh look, Keith, it's your really, really good friend, Scott. And he's holding a bloody candlestick for some reason that's probably going to be explained any minute now. Wait, did you just say that we are really good friends? I'm so relieved to hear you say that because I've got kind of a good friends help you move bodies situation going on here. Have you both been murdering people? What's going on here? See, I'm under this family curse and I've got to kill a handful of people every year or I risk losing my ability to analyze films. And I finally got sick of being blackmailed by the Anti-Burrito Lettuce Council, and I fought back. Okay, okay, fine. It sounds like everybody had good reasons for mortal violence tonight, but I am not sure what we're going to do with all these corpses. Oh, that part's easy. I've got a giant pit out back where I just dump them. For some reason, no one ever asks questions. Wait, really? Huh. That's that's really convenient. Um, Could you show me where that pit is? Uh, Keith, I'm just going to go check out this pit situation with Scott for a minute. Uh, in the meantime, could you tell the listeners we've been incriminating ourselves to for the last five minutes what our pairing is this week? You mean the pairing of people I ritualistically killed and desecrated in order to keep my trenchant powers of analysis? The pairing of movies we're going to talk about today. Oh, that? Oh, sure. Why not? There's a long and complicated story behind the John Landis-Jonathan Lynn collaboration, Clue, and it includes iterations of the film starring Carrie Fisher or written by Tom Stoppard. But ultimately, it was Landis's idea and Lynn's script that made it to theaters, built around a group of black male victims rounded up in a house where first the servants, then a series of bystanders keep getting killed. It's all based on a popular board game. The game connection and the setting with a group of outsized character types running around in a huge house waving simple weapons came up for us recently when we saw Ready or Not, a low-budget, high-energy film about a family of extremely rich board game magnates chasing a new bride around their house trying to kill her. Hey, so Scott and I are back from this corpse pit thing. It's a pretty sweet setup. There's no way we are ever getting caught for our various crimes. Wait, we? Yeah, sure. Did you think you were the only people with spare corpses in the closet? So this week, it's two films about murder and mayhem and games, both a little silly, both a lot messy, and both with some surprises. Now, come on, friends. Let's get to work here. Every person in this room has the perfect motive. Stand back! For murder. What do you mean? Murder. But only one of these suspects is the murderer. Is it the timid Mr. Green? You screaming because I'm right out Screaming! Or the militant Colonel Mustard. Oh, if I was the killer, I would kill you next. Huh? Except half. Half. Mrs. White, who helped her husband on his way. What's the matter of life after death? Now that he's dead, I have a life. Ah! Miss Scarlet, who's helped many men along the way. Practice makes perfect. Huh? Professor Plum, who's looking for a way. I'm looking, I'm looking. Mrs. Peacock. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Or did the butler do it? In the musical Gypsy, Stephen Sondheim devotes a song to the importance of stunty standout maneuvers in the burlesque world. Just taking off your clothes isn't enough, a group of veteran strippers tell a newbie, if you don't have some kind of signature business that fans can remember. Kid, you gotta have a gimmick if you want to stay ahead, one performer belts out in the opening verses. 
But what makes a hit performer in one field can torpedo someone in another field? And in the cinema world, anything that feels too gimmicky, anything designed to get butts in seats without respecting a film's artistry, has traditionally been dismissed as a commercial ploy, a William Castle-style stunt that automatically makes a film trashy and cheap. That explains a lot about what happened with the comedy mystery Clue, the writing and directing debut of Jonathan Lynn. Clue arrived in theaters in 1985 to critical contempt and audience indifference. Just the fact that it was the first movie based on a board game was enough to turn off a lot of viewers. And the film's big gimmick, a murder mystery with three different endings, which the producers hoped audiences would watch three times in different theaters for completeness's sake, instantly annoyed moviegoers, who didn't think they should have to pay three times to mostly watch the same film over and over. In a disgusted review back in 1985, Roger Ebert revealed that he'd been shown all three endings, which were designated with the letters A, B, and C, so theaters could advertise which ending they had, and no one had to sit through the film just hoping to luck into a new solution to the murders. Ebert recommended one of those three endings to viewers by its letter designation, then added, quote, At the last minute, Paramount called back to say they weren't sure whether they were right about which endings corresponded with which letters. So we're back where we started, unquote. But the video era was made for films like Clue. Divorced from its three theaters gimmick and presented on home video with all three endings, it holds up as a lively, fast-moving, entirely light farce with a handful of good verbal gags, a lot of great physical comedy, and a terrific cast that just got more memorable as the film aged. Clue became one of those look-at-this-collection-of-talent movies where most of the primary players, Tim Curry, Leslie Ann Warren, Eileen Brennan, Martin Mull, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKean, and Madeline Kahn, went on to bigger things. Clue became a video cult classic with a fervent following, fed by cable repeats and word of mouth. And when you aren't paying triple for a few extra moments of footage, the triple ending feels like the fun, innovative, distinctive kind of gimmick instead of the cynical ring-more-money-out-of-you kind. That said, cynicism never seemed to be a big part of Clue. Judging from online histories about the film, director John Landis and American Werewolf in London producer Peter Guber seem to have been hugely enthusiastic about the potential of the project and the way it built from a simple story about a group of blackmailed strangers gathered in a remote manor house by an unknown party into a noises-off style comedy where the cast raced from room to room, always a few steps behind the latest calamity. Director Jonathan Lynn, known for his stage work and for helming three years of the popular British farce series Yes Minister, was hauled in on the project when Landis couldn't quite crack the script, and then later couldn't direct because he was off directing Spies Like Us. In Lynn's hands, the script became a screwball comedy that still respects the board game with surprising fidelity, from the obvious color-coded character names to the secret passages between specific rooms to the list of weapons like the pipe and wrench. Lynn's script also packed the story with innuendo and extremely mild raunch, Enough to seem a little daring and edgy for a family comedy, but not enough to be really offensive. Again, exactly the kind of movie poised to become a cult hit once it arrived on video. Watching Clue in 2019, that raunch clearly comes from another era of filmmaking, one where it's fine to hang multiple sight gags on leering boob jokes, or men repeatedly ending up with their hands all over the asses of their female co-stars. It's also a film where a minor sight gag involving people checking their shoes for dog poop gets extensive play, and where multiple lines are turned into running gags that are only funny because of the enthusiasm the cast pours into them. This is not a highbrow film. It's not even a particularly well-constructed mystery. It's literal slapstick, given the number of people who get slapped silly over the course of the film, or who bowl each other over and land in a heap. It's weightless and loud and friendly, like an evening built around, say, a casual board game with friends and a few bottles of wine. Incidentally, back when Landis was trying to come up with a workable script, Stephen Sondheim was one of the people he called in to consult on fixing it. That gypsy number aside, Sondheim wasn't the one who told Landis he had to get a gimmick. That seems to have been Landis's idea from the start. Except in his mind, there were four endings. Len eventually decided one of those endings wasn't working well, and he discarded it during production. But just think, there could have been an even gimmickier version of Clue out there. Everything is explained. Nothing's explained. We still don't know who killed him. But the point is, we've got to find out in the next 39 minutes before the police arrive. My God, we can't have them come here now. But how can we possibly find out which of you did it? What do you mean, which of you did it? Well, I didn't do it. Well, one of us did. We all had the opportunity. We all had a motive. Great. We'll all go to the chair. Maybe it wasn't one of us. Well, who else could it have been? Who else is in the house? Only the cook. The cook! The cook! So, guys, what's your experience with Clue, and uh, how does it play for you now? Uh, I can tell you exactly my experience. This is the first time I've seen all three endings. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it in the theater. I can't remember what ending I saw at the time, 
But um, I liked it well enough then, and I, I like it. I like it now. Like you said, it's just a very companionable, uh, low stakes. You know, yeah, low stakes doesn't aim that high, but you know, you, you got that cast. You got them running around. I think the first and third parts of it work a lot better than the middle, which I think gets really draggy. But uh, but no, it's fun. It's I had a really good time watching it. It's one of my wife's favorites because I, I I think someone who's just we're all about the same age here. So I think the people that are like maybe five years younger than us really grew up with this on TV a lot, and it's like even more of a staple of, of their of their youths than of ours but uh, uh i don't know it was fun well how about you scott you you watched it not more recently than that right i don't think i saw this one when it came out it was a couple of years before i started working in a movie theater and getting really seriously into into movies um i probably just moved to georgia and was not really seeing a whole lot probably other than some hits <laughs> this was not a hit so probably i probably didn't have as much of a chance to see it and so my first time seeing it was for a new cult canon piece I wrote because it was like, what? Wait a minute. I know all about Clue. I've heard the story of Clue. And now suddenly people like this movie. Why Why is that? What is this all about? And so I kind of go and explore, you know, and watch this movie and then and look at the history of it and try to figure out what it was about this well-known disaster that had somehow struck a chord with people um, in the years since. And I can see just seeing it now, seeing it for New Cult Canon and then seeing it today, you know why it bombed. But the reasons why it bombed are the reasons why it's interesting because it was basically taking a bunch of genres that audiences had not encountered in decades <laughs> and wrapping it around a board game mm -hmm. and putting that movie out. So you've got a Agatha Christie style whodunit you have a bedroom farce slash screwball comedy. I mean, these are really, really old forms of filmmaking that are being revived for this. And then you really have scripty repartee. Right, exactly. And then and then you have it attached to this conceit that is still, I think, a little awkward. I mean, there are plenty of choices that are made in this movie, plenty of elements that, that, a, that a sane writer of a whodunit slash, you know, bedroom farce would never do. I mean, you'd never have people unboxing weapons <laughs> like they do and you would never have uh you know the, the the idea of them coming to this meeting with their those it's just the whole thing is just very shoehorned in but i don't know i think it's charming i don't know what to say and i think it's almost like rather than the, the, it being actually witty it, it, which it is sometimes or actually surprising which it is in this because i don't know what the hell's going on most of the time uh, uh <laughs> it, it just has the flavor of something that's entertaining and that in, in itself is entertaining there's something about just the pace of it the manicness of it the conceit of it that's playful and lively and winning even if it's not really working entirely as it should if that makes sense i mean it's patently ridiculous like no, it's not just the way the murder mystery doesn't really fit together that's ridiculous it's like just the behavior of everyone in this movie is ridiculous and i think that that's just part of the appeal it is a screwball comedy but like the old screwball comedies also held together to some degree as saying something about human behavior like mm -hmm. you know in bringing a baby it maybe it's hard to imagine a rich person hauling a leopard around with her everywhere she goes but like the relationship between the principals is kind of you know it's your anti-mame kind of relationship of uh you know somebody who's just so outrageous that she draws attention and everybody kind of like loves how how bizarre she is and how much they lighten up her lives the bizarre behavior in clue i'm not sure it speaks much to human nature but it's like it's cartoon mm -hmm. it's a live action cartoon and the more tim curry like runs wildly from room to room literally bowling people over with his body the more cartoonish it feels like in a really good way i can tell you i didn't see this in theaters i was really I, I like when it came out i was at the age where i was perpetually fascinated by uh advertisements for films and i would like just pour over uh reviews of those films um but we, we weren't a very, like, going to the theater kind of family. And the whole idea of, like, so wait, we have to see this three times was just roundly <laughs> rejected. Yeah. And then VCRs became affordable. And suddenly we were, you know, going down to our local video hut style place every other night to get movies. And, and Clue was just like an automatic, oh, we, we get to find out what the deal is with this. Yeah. So, I mean, I remember watching it when I was pretty young and most of it went over my head. You know, there's a lot of sexual innuendo and the whole idea of the plot just kind of like whisks by. Watching it now, 
Uh, I kind of have to roll my eyes at some of the tittering over bodies, basically, mm-hmm. which is a funny thing to say about a movie full of bodies. But t- God, Tim Curry is just yeah. he's so appealing. He really gives the film an, an, uh, an injection of, of energy in the la- in the home stretch that it really needs. And, and of course, he's you know obviously he's great, you know, and he's going to bring to life whatever he's in. And and, and I think that uses him very well there at the end. I wonder if the place where you're talking about the movie slowing down i mean at at the point where they all split up and they just spend a whole lot of time investigating effectively empty spaces and finding nothing yeah (laughs) obviously that's kind of cinematic death but i wonder if the real problem is way less tim curry yeah no that's fair i mean everyone kind of splits off into teams and only a few of them make for a great comedy yeah, I think it's more of a, a little from column A or a little from column B because there really isn't a whole lot of purpose. I mean, the result of that is that we maybe get more information about characters and what, what they've seen and experienced and found or whatever. It's really not even that much that kind of pays off in some of the endings. <laughs> Who knows, as as Tim Curry is frantically running around, like telling everybody everything that happened. And, and really, ultimately, again, it's not really satisfying as a whodunit because I, I think the action that would have been that would have had to have been taken for the actions plural that would have had to have been taken the many murders that take place in the time frame in which they take place and the manner in which they take place are just so completely absurd and fast and it's just it's a very frustrating film if you want to be frustrated by it if you want to actually you know sit down and try to unpack all of the things that are going on and you know who was where and who did what and what, who had what weapon in what room, et cetera. Like I, I think the film would just be uh, a nightmare to watch. But I, I just don't. I don't really receive it that way. I don't think it really is supposed to play that way. I think it's really just about energy and pace and manic fun. To some degree, it's an Agatha Christie parody. It's just not the kind of like very literal. Hey, remember this scene from this movie? We're going to like make fun of it kind of parody that was in vogue at the time. You know, your Zucker Abram Zucker style movies that were just like a litany of specific references mixed with, you know, kind of crass, hilarious gags. Mm -hmm. This is a lot more general, just sort of like, hey, you remember this genre? What if we did this genre, but we just revved it up really fast and, and ran around a lot? Yeah. But this movie does have some stretches that are really dire too. I mean, I think the beginning of the film is awful. Like, I was ready to like to bail because it's like how much, like, like how long is that dog poop? Dog poop. It goes on forever. That's like a good 10 minutes. Well, it never quite gets to the point where where Krusty stepping on the rake gets funny again, you know? Yeah. yeah, But it never, it's never even resolved, really. And and the dogs never pay off. Like, there's the moment where Mr. Body goes for the the greenhouse and can't leave, and because uh, there's a dog there, but it's a a Doberman. It's a completely different dog than the Mm. ones that are chained up out front. There's never any payoff for we've got these angry dogs like chained off out front. There's no reason for any of that to be in the story unless it's a specific parody of something that I'm not familiar with, which yeah, I, you know, maybe. often in a moment like that, I'm like, is this <laughs> is this touching base with something where somebody out there is like, oh, that's hilarious. It also seems like the kind of thing that might play better on a British TV show in the 80s with a laugh track accompanying it than it does like watching it at home with deathly silence every time someone chucks their, uh, uh, chucks their shoe or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. That's, I, I mean, that's Lynn's background, so. That is true. I mean, um, he was still a few wa- years away from his masterpiece, which is My Cousin Vinny. I need to see it again. Keith you know, is not a fan. I, I love it. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah, really? I mean, there, there's... Is there's just me? I wouldn't say dead air in, in My Cousin Vinny. There's, there are parts that aren't hilarious, but by the time you get to the courtroom scene and yeah. Fred Gwynn and the two Utes business... Two Utes. I may not have finished it. I mean, you know... Oh. All right. That's pays off. The payoff I, is, is much... The wind-up is a little bit sluggish which is i guess cl- very clue-like yeah and then it can, and then i think once you the core material with marissa tomei and and joe pesci very funny and some I really some, good courtroom stuff i got some homework then I guess. oh yeah right. personal trivia is it was the first blu-ray i ever got really yeah. i didn't buy it it, yeah. it it just happened to show up on my desk yeah, and uh, right. so uh it's my oldest blu-ray wow how about that my cousin Vinny. other re- this is just the kind of gold i'm not sure that, kind of not sure that, that my cousin listeners... Vinny, as much as i like my cousin Vinny, i'm not sure that it's a movie that requires the fidelity of a Blu-ray. <laughs> well, I don't know. That said, uh, given like uh, Jonathan Linden didn't, hasn't directed a ton of stuff, I do think he may have peaked with my cousin Vinny. But then I also think that movie's really, really funny. Yes, he, we're with you on that. Well, let's run it down real quickly, okay? You did Clue. 
Yeah. He, he left oh, his no. wounds, went back to Britain. He did Nuns on the Run. Never well, seen. Can't cast Stratcher. Okay. My Cousin Vinny. Yeah, there you I go. Think and then Nuns on the Run is uh, a little dire. Did a lot dire. of really high profile films that I, that I don't think anyone really cares no. for that much. Distinguished Gentleman, Greedy, Sergeant Bilko, Trial and Error. I've seen that one. It's not yeah. good. The Whole Nine Yards. That was another that was hit. A hit at least. Yeah. And then The Fighting Temptations and something called Wild Target. Then I think he just, he's just, he's, he's just chilling, I think. <laughs> That's fine. He's alive know? though. Let's he's, just be, say that he's alive. He worked he's, really he, hard and, you know, go ahead and relax, Jonathan. He Lund. may be just kicking back and watching and that cable clue money roll in. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I think one of the things that is most interesting about this film now is just the degree to which everybody in the primary cast is famous. Some of them were, were famous at the time. Some of them, like, this was fairly early in their career. But either way, you watch this now, and it's just like there's Michael McKean being, like, skinny and looking about 19 years old, you know? Yeah. There's Martin Mull doing the Martin Mull thing. There's Madeline Kahn doing some business that is some of her most quoted business ever. I'm just curious, like what about these performances stand out for you? Like if, if, if there's anybody that you think is besides Tim Curry, that's particularly vital to the film or particularly fun. I mean, Curry is the most important performance here and it is absolutely critical for as good as the film is. He's responsible for a lot of that. I think everyone else is they're nice to see. I mean, I think that at the time there were some pretty established stars there up and I mean, like you know, uh, Christopher Lloyd had done th- this was the summer same, same this year as Back summer to the Back to the Future, which had cut, this, this came out in December, I believe. But it was so. before Back to the Future. I mean, it, it was, was it was post Taxi in uh, in terms of shooting it, shooting uh, it, yeah. like certainly nobody knew about Back to the Future yeah. at the time it was being made. It's really kind of for. Relatively speaking, for Lloyd, an understated performance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, given the context, especially he's actually like fairly low key and and dialed that down for him. I think Madeline Kahn is probably mm-hmm. going to be your runaway, <laughs> your runaway of the of the rest of the cast. She's, I think, she's a, a a bit of a head above. I mean, the thing that that I really find fascinating about this movie is that the most memed thing in the movie is her line about the flames and the side of my face, and that's one of the endings. So so it's it would have been you would have only had a 33.3% chance of seeing mm-hmm. what would what would become the most famous moment in the movie. And it's also one of the few moments of improvisation that Lynn allowed in the film. If you, if there's a good article on BuzzFeed, which we'll link to somewhere, or just Google BuzzFeed Clue movie. You'll love it. Um, it's uh, where, where Lynn was very strict about saying fidelity to the, to the script. And that's probably one. because the mystery was so tight, like nothing, nothing could be moved. Yeah. It was all load bearing. Yeah, and, and like you know, that was a moment that that he let her get away with, and it's you know, it is really the funniest single moment in, in the film. Um, I mean, she she's great in it too. I mean, I think everyone's re- really solid. Um, but it's it, it is a strange movie where that no one you rarely get a chance for anyone to really like steal the movie except for Curry. Um, but uh, I, I think Leslie Ann Warren's very good too. She's the one who actually seems to have given some thought to who her character is and what her character wants beyond like saying funny lines and doing funny things. I feel like like watching her throughout the film, she is doing an, an ongoing bit much more than anybody else. I suspect that a lot of the direction for this included, all right, now all everybody go back and stand in the middle of the, the room again. The cops are going to come in, but this time you're the one that's going to cringe, uh, you know, because so much of it had to be redone. And you, if you keep your eyes on her, you keep seeing her do little comic business, mm-hmm. uh, like doing little like wiggling things with her hips and little false smiles whenever she sees like a cop looking at her. Or like suddenly straightening, straightening herself up and sucking in her stomach when she's like leaning against a table. Like there's a perpetual awareness of her beauty that like is a character thing. The character is very image focused and is very focused on this idea of her own seductiveness. And you keep seeing her over and over getting jolted out of it by events and then sort of remembering herself and like putting her game face back on. And it's pretty subtle isn't the right word for it, but it's not something that the camera focuses on in a way that makes me think she was being directed to do that in every scene. It feels like something she herself is just kind of like, oh, this is the point where my character remembers that she has to be sexy at all time because that's her brand. Mm-hmm. And she just keeps seeing her adjust herself. I think I think it's delightful. And I think she helps sell NDA. 
<laughs> sure. Right? In which uh, she is the guilty party. Uh, I guess we, we can talk about the ending maybe later if we want to. Uh, we definitely have to talk about her, the multiple endings. But I think all the points you've made about her performance are correct and do sort of make that ending A payoff as well as it does. I mean, one other thing I would also note, too, is this is a Deborah Hill production. Yeah. And, uh, and she's really an incredible woman. I mean, she if you listen to uh, Amy Nicholson's podcast on Halloween for The Ringer, Amy gives a ton of credit to Deborah Hill's production of Halloween, which was done for so little money. And she, of course, produced four other, you know, three other films of John Carpenter. So she's, she's mostly very well known for that. Co-wrote as well. Yeah, she, yeah, that's true. And she, she wrote and produced Halloween too. But yeah, it's a very interesting, very good producer. And I think, uh, you know, again, gets a lot out of this production in this space because that's a, that's a pretty big gamble. I mean, I'm like, there's so many gambles this film takes not to, just in terms of genre but also you know having everything take place in this house and making the most out of the space developing the space i mean that's the producer's job it's also a director's job and our screenwriter's job and I, you know i think the, the film doesn't do it perfectly but I, I was delighted by the one game connection i absolutely loved are the secret passageways mm-hmm. that lead from one room to the other as they do in the game obviously there are four different rooms in the game where you can just go leap all the way across the board for the film to kind of express that in the form of secret passageways through which people could go and commit murder, a really clever idea. And I think it kind of almost gets to the cards in the envelope thing. Of course, you know, if you've played the game Clue, um, when you're setting up, you're drawing a person, a weapon, and a room randomly, and you're putting them in this little envelope. And, you know, after several rounds of clue gathering, somebody tries to decide what the mystery is, and then you open the envelope and see if they're right. The film doesn't quite get that right, but there is an envelope involved. <laughs> you know, there are, there are papers that are kind of extracted from an envelope, uh, even if they're not the name of the killer in uh, the room and the weapon that was used. Uh, so I kind of appreciate that element too. Yeah, I from reading that BuzzFeed article, I get the vague sense, it's not exactly spelled up, but I get the vague sense that Lynn was literally given a checklist of things that the movie had to touch on, mm-hmm. you know, that he had to work into the script, which is like a hell of a challenge when you've got something, like when he was first presented with the idea, he basically said, there's no story. Clue doesn't have a story. And I, I can't help but wonder if that ended up being in spite of the like checklist of things that he had to hit, like the envelope and the secret passages and the names and the weapons, if it was freeing to not be in like a World of Warcraft situation where you have a ton of story and, and things that people are expecting to see and things that you have to condense. And then at the same time, you're trying to make something that resembles a coherent movie. I don't know. It, it might have worked out in Clue's favor. When are we doing World of Warcraft on the podcast? When the uh, remake of World of Warcraft oh, okay. comes out and we can we can like make the comparison, like yeah. the 10-year comparison. That works. The thing is, one of the things that helps Clue in retrospect, of course, is that you know, at the time, it was ridiculed for being an adaptation of a board game. Now we've seen other adaptations of board games and toy lines and everything video else, and yeah. everything else. And so and Disneyland so, rides. And so you're right, Disneyland rides. So this is super classy by comparison to those, right? I mean, it, this is classier than Battleship. It's better connected to the game that it, that it's referencing. I mean, our standards have been lowered. Clue is exceeding those standards now. I mean, that said, a, like a you know, not a month goes by that we don't hear that Dance Dance Revolution has been licensed for a movie. Mm. Rubik's Cube has been licensed for a movie. Ridley Scott's Monopoly was something that's going to happen at one point. It was a Hot Cheetos movie with uh, that, that Eva, Eva Longoria. Although, to be fair, that is a movie about the, the inventor of the yeah. Hot Cheetos as opposed to a bunch of talking, singing Hot Cheetos or whatever. Chester Cheetos. I'm just trying to, I'm think, for my Chester Cheetos. I'm trying to think which one of those I would want more. I mean, the, I will I'll go to my grave saying that the the tr- animated troll doll movie was actually pretty pretty fun. Uh, but that was another thing when they said we're c- coming out with a troll doll movie. I was like, really? Angry Birds. Those I have Those managed to avoid seeing. Yeah. They oh, look terrible. Well, I yeah, the I've seen the second one. I heard it was better than the first one, but but <laughs> I mean, I I I think I have I done this spiel on this podcast before, but I mean, I've just I decided a few years ago that there just aren't any bad ideas, just bad execution. Because sure. I think I think. 
Creed is a terrible idea. I think Fargo, the TV series, is a terrible idea, et cetera, et cetera. But I, uh, the two, the two follow-ups to Before Sun, uh, Sunrise yeah, seem like they're terrible don't, ideas. Don't touch Before Sunrise. You, you know, you it's can't, a perfect ending. Yeah, Why exactly. Would you do that? So yeah, I don't. I, I, I even like, and I feel like in this in this age of turn every IP into a movie, it's easy to get exhausted by that. But I also kind of just want to give everything a chance, you know. That is entirely fair. I feel like part of the strengths here, though, is that Lin was coming from such a place of let's respect the classics. Like he sat the entire cast down with his girl Friday and basically said, like, this is the kind of movie I want to make. Like, I want to move at the speed. I want to respect the rhythms of screwball comedies. I want you to talk like this. Uh, and Eileen <laughs> Brennan apparently really objected to it. She was mm. like, don't you people understand method? Uh-huh. Uh but that said, you know, he had something specific in mind that he was going for that wasn't, eh, let's poop out an IP. I'm curious, like, you guys have seen a lot of screwball comedies. Yeah. Like, do you feel that that energy in to- that Totally. Rhythm? I mean, it's one of the things the film has going for it. The problem is that it's not supported as much by wit as you'd want. I mean, it's kind of just the sound of it, the sound of wit, <laughs> not the real thing much, much of the time. Whereas, whereas you watch something like, you know, The Lady Eve or something or, or His Girl Friday and you're laughing the whole way in this movie. These movies are just so smart and, you know, way out in front of you and sophisticated. And that's not Clue. Clue is not, it just isn't that. But it does have the bouquet of that. There's also, it doesn't have the animating energy of sex to it either of a screwball comedy. I mean, there's leering mm. and there's looking at bodies and there's innuendo, but there's no sexual tension between any of these characters whatsoever. And that's really what is driving a lot of screwball comedies at heart. That's true. I mean, I feel that's because there was a conscious decision to make Clue much more about the different kind of sexual tension, the sure. sexual tension of discomfort and leering. Mm. I mean, we get introduced to Miss Scarlet uh, with Professor Plum's putting his hand on her ass as they're like as the door's being opened he doesn't know her he just decides to take a grope like we get introduced to Yvette the sexy French maid who apparently got that job by showing up for the audition in a sexy French maid costume (laughs) and Lynn was just like what could you do? I looked at her body. We had to, but she, she's, she's good though. No, don't 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 sell Colleen Camp short. She's, she's fun and uh, like I I really love the reveal where she walks into the darkened room mm-hmm. and is talking to an unseen person and she doesn't have that French accent anymore. But that said, she's very underused and a lot of what she does in this movie is jiggle. Mm. Um, she's she's set up for that. You know, she's set up for not a whole lot of of really substantive contribution. And in an environment where like there's so much humor, I guess, around the maid being fat and how difficult it is to manhandle her body and how much time they spend with their hands on her ass. Like in that environment, it's hard to actually have like like a kind of sexual tension that's actually revolving around the possibility of sex mm. as opposed to, you know, kind of leering like, you know, pubescent. Isn't it hilarious that we keep touching each other in unwanted ways? Well, I mean, one of the things, though, about classic screwball comedy in that period is that the central conflict of those movies is always the battle of the sexes. There's always this very specific tension between men and women and equality being uh, a critical issue. I mean, so if you're fighting over that issue, and, uh, you know, I think that fight yields a sexiness that this film doesn't because, you, as, as you say, much more about leering and, you know, it's tacky. I, I don't know. One thing I kind of wanted to talk about, I don't know if, we're, if we want to shift into it, but I, I want to talk about those endings. Because one of the things that bothers me about the movie is that it can have those endings. That there's not a single ending because it, it makes everything seem very, you know, it makes the, every, the whole exercise seem arbitrary. Because if you're just having, if it can end in three different ways... Um, then what have we spent all of this time setting up, up all of this information for? You Just for what? So in that sense, it fails even before you get to the gimmick of asking people <laughs> to go see one of three different endings. You know what I'm saying? I see what you're saying. I mean, I do feel like one of the big inspirations here is Murder on the Orient Express. And I think that's why the C ending, or at least the third ending, as I've always seen it presented on VHS or DVD or whatever, is the best one. Because it does go to that uh, everybody did it, everybody's guilty kind of place. Yeah. 
the other two kind of feel like placeholders because you've got all of the setup of, well, these guys are all kind of terrible people in bad situations uh, who are all possibly capable of this. But then that premise doesn't end up paying off. And the B ending in particular just feels really undercooked. It's so bad. (laughs) Like, it's like, I mean, I think we all are in agreement with the ranking here. It's it's cab. (laughs) C-A-B. C is a pretty inspired ending. A is perfectly acceptable. B is just... I'd feel really let down if that were the ending I got. I mean, really? Eileen Brennan? Really? I don't think the problem is Eileen Brennan. I do think Eileen Brennan is hugely underused in this movie, mm -hmm. that that she's not getting to play to her strengths. And from what I've read, it seems like that ending, there was a lot more to that ending. And Lynn decided in editing that it was too morbid. Like when the cops sweep in, they shoot her. Uh And when they found out that she killed a cop, they come out and shoot her corpse again. And it was played for laughs. So, (laughs) I guess I'm laughing, but (laughs) (laughs) that is is, is not in tune with what Clue is, I don't think. Yeah. So, apparently, Lynn decided that that was just, it was going too bleak. But then, like, if you watch it with that in mind, you end up seeing, well, like, no wonder it's shorter and less developed and, and kind of abrupt. And she just kind of disappears. But yeah, I feel like it's way less justified. Yeah. Yeah, Steve, for sure. I mean, I, you know, it's also the longest ending and the most complicated. And, you know, I can see why it's now chosen as the official uh, solution to the mystery when they were when they're doing the home video version of this. Uh, but it's such a weird thing, too. And it's like, I can see why audiences might have been turned off by it and just might, might have just like, well, why am I bothering with this? You know, especially when the reviews weren't all that stellar at the time. But I don't know. Did it ever feel like that could have been a selling point? I mean... I try to think of a scenario where really, you know, obviously, I don't know, you know, the studio was expecting this, but I guess the the ultimate goal here is everyone goes see it three times. But I, I can't really see a scenario where people would be doing that. Yeah, but I mean, like, if you think about it, like a game show or something. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you, you got the door A, door B, door C. I mean, that's kind of a fun thing of like, hey, I got, I chose door A, yeah. and look what I found behind there. I mean, it's really hard, but it is, it's difficult to the imagine scenario where people were were coming back and seeing different endings is pure hubris. Well, I feel like the effort, <laughs> especially I mean, for such a lightweight film, I mean, this film is yeah. not going to like it's not going to necessarily be gratifying seeing it three different times especially seeing it three different times over the course of a couple of weeks before it leaves theaters well i I was you know it's funny too also i was was looking up um i've subscribed to a service called newspapers.com where you can look at old newspapers and i was looking at my hometown newspaper of the uh in dayton ohio and the ads would tell you which inning was playing where but to see all of them would involve driving quite a ways to three different parts of town, which is not, you can't imagine that was terribly convenient for anybody. You have to really, if you have to put in a lot of effort to drive, you know, you know, 20 miles to see a different ending. I mean, people do really enjoy collecting things. People really are completists. I feel like in this day and age, you can almost get away with it, except that, uh, you know, a lot of film outlets would just start putting up the here are all three endings piece on on their websites like two minutes after it premiered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody would just read it all online and be done with it. I think we're uh, about wrapped up on this. I, the last thing I want to ask, though, is just this is a movie with a lot of gags that are kind of OK and a lot of callback humor that's just like, if we say this enough, it's going to be funny. But I do feel like it's got like at least a couple of moments that really land. I'm wondering if besides, besides flames on the side of my face, uh, if you have like a favorite gag or joke or moment in this film. I would say I, I, I like the idea of them stacking bodies in <laughs> <laughs> in the same room uh you know and i think you almost see it's one of those things where you almost see it developing into something that's going to be really funny and great and it just doesn't quite get there but the idea made me laugh i mean i like the idea of a guy kind of getting squeezed in between two corpses but the film has some like little almost like marx brothersy one-liners I, I can't of course name one off the top of my head but um, uh, i'll name one for you sure is the fbi in the habit of covering up multiple murder Yes. Why do you think it's run by a man named Hoover? Oh, that's good. I like that. You know, that's that's why that's that's the kind of dad joke I can get into. Yeah, I don't know that it's the greatest joke, but you're right. It is a very Marx Brothers comedy kind of mm-hmm. kind of setup. Yep, and that's you know, I mean, it's charming. It's charming that a, that a movie made in 1985, you know, decades removed from all the genres that it's subgenres that it's referencing uh, could exist. I I think my favorite little touch in the movie is just 
towards the end when there have been so many corpses and the lights go off for the millionth time and everybody is exhausted from jumping and flinching every time something happens. The lights come back on. There are three new corpses and Lynn just sort of follows them wearily trudging from room to room and looking just completely expressionless on the new the newest three bodies <laughs> just the way he conducts that entire sequence of oh that person's dead oh look somebody else is dead here too <laughs> i laugh at that every time and it's completely antithetical to the like running around banging into each other uh screaming slapsticky uh, rendition of the rest of the film it's almost like a respite but but just the soul deep weariness on everybody's faces i find hilarious i don't know why but i, I laughed when they shot the singing telegram <laughs> woman <laughs> played by jane weedland from the go-go's uh i don't know it's just it's just you know i'd seen this movie before but it's still unexpected to me well uh, maybe, maybe i'm the morbid one maybe maybe i would love the b ending if they'd done the full version with all the murder in it but who knows <laughs> I mean, it's possible. Well, we're about to wrap up and move on to feedback in which uh, a bunch of our listeners uh, would like to kill us and throw us in a pit. Or maybe we don't want to go that morbid with it. Maybe they they just want to tell us how they feel. It depends on which ending we get. We'll find out shortly when we move on to feedback. time for feedback when our listeners weigh in with their responses to recent episodes and anything else in the world of film. Our recent pairing on Shampoo and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood prompted some listeners to take us a task at length. We have a bunch of letters that are significantly long and deal with a lot of issues. We're going to start with this one this week, uh, cutting it down from a much longer version that we're going to post on Facebook, and we'll hopefully get into some of the other issues raised by other listeners in later weeks. Scott, can you go ahead and read this one? Uh, sure. Uh, Hussein writes, I was disappointed race was not brought up at all in the discussion of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm not sure what the reactions were like in the theater you went to, but watching the two leads discuss, quote, not crying in front of the Mexicans, unquote, was greeted with hearty laughter in my theater. That and lines about beaners make it pretty clear that these characters net out in relation to the counterculture movement of the 1960s. So making them the heroes that stave off the future for one night by killing what they see as hippies is pretty intentional. Also shocked you did not discuss the Bruce Lee scene at all. The scene was constructed to prop up Cliff as dangerous and cool at the expense of Bruce Lee, the only person of color in this movie who had a speaking line. I'm fine with movies having no prominent actors of color if the characters are people that don't know any. But Lee's vocal intonations while fighting were mocked, and my audience found this quite hilarious. People were squealing with audible glee during the murders in my theater, and this excess at the end was clearly meant to express Tarantino's rage at the hippies who ended this golden era of Hollywood that he loved. The subtext of a director who pressured Uma Thurman into a dangerous stunt accident stayed silent during the Weinstein era, and then goes back in time to make another historical fantasy where men solve history with violence is a hard pill to swallow. His use of violence to solve historic problems at this stage of his career seems more like a midlife crisis as opposed to what he was doing earlier in his career. We're in an era where dangerous fantasies of America's great past are poisoning the present and warping the future. Had a hard time swallowing the pill of these guys being the heroes that kept the 60s great, despite absolutely loving these performances. There's a ton going on in uh, the rest of this letter as well, but there's, you're there's just plenty, there's plenty cutting the, it down to this. There's plenty there's going so on. There's so much what going we have on here. here. Yes. It's like a, it's a very well condensed version of a lot of people's issues with it. So yeah, we should dig into this. Uh, I mean, I want to start with the Bruce Lee thing. I when I when I came out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, I was planning on writing about it, and I was uh, I believe hospitalized the next day, mm. uh, so I never got to write about it, and I wasn't around for the, the you're podcast. Okay, you're okay though, right? Uh, I mean, all my limbs fell off, but other than that, I'm fine. But the Bruce Lee thing was the one thing I like. I walked out of the theater and tweeted about it because I was like there are going to be hundreds of pieces about this, like just unpacking what he's doing in the scene and whether it's excusable. I And to me, it, it just, it wasn't. It wasn't funny. It wasn't telling. It was just this fairly cheap seeming takedown of a Hollywood legend who worked really hard for 
like inclusive and meaningful roles for Asian actors and to kind of raise the standard of like how Asian people were portrayed in Hollywood in general. And he comes up as a cheap blowhard who a white guy shuts down. And then Tarantino's response to criticism has more or less been, you know, well, it was it was a tie like they didn't you know, he he didn't lose two out of three. And as with so many cases where Tarantino defends himself, it just seems so defensive and belligerent at the same time. I It was one of my least favorite parts of the film. Yeah, I wrote a piece kind of trying to, I mean, uh, I wrote a piece trying to put it in context of, of where Lee was in his career and how the movie was using him. Uh, because he is someone else who is, I mean, there's a lot, this film is filled with doomed characters, <laughs> including Bruce Lee. Uh, I think it's kind of important to realize that there's, I think he's being used in a very specific way. That said, you know, white guy, not necessarily going to pick up on everything. I'd direct everyone to a very good article called Why Are You Laughing at Bruce Lee by Walter yeah, Shaw. Yeah, I was about to say that one. Which, one. which it's in Vulture. So, so look for that. It, and it really kind of unpacks the scene, which he liked because he felt like it kind of humanized and took away that the uh, iconization and like made um, Bruce Lee, who was, you know, by all reports, a, you know, kind of a, a testy fellow with, with who would hold court and, and do this sort of thing. Uh, it kind of made him into more of a human figure and less of an icon. But it was made very uncomfortable by the audience reaction to that scene and, and the laughter around it, too. So I think it's a complicated moment. And I think it's worth exploring. Um, I mean, I ended up in my piece perhaps not grappling with with how other felt felt with it but i th- i think there's there's more to it than just let's laugh at, at bruce lee and some of that's maybe out of tarantino's hands some of it maybe is not handled as well as it could be uh but yeah i just I'd, I'd point everyone towards Shaw's piece which is probably the best treatment i've ever i want to i want to get into the audience reaction separately because that is that is a really big topic and a really interesting one um and it, well and it also sort of colors this entire letter too exactly but before that like i i also want to recommend variety talk to uh, Bruce Lee's daughter Shannon. Uh, <laughs> He's not a fan, I know. <laughs> yeah, and uh, that I would also recommend looking that piece up. It's uh, the headline on that one is Bruce Lee's daughter says Quentin Tarantino quote could shut up unquote about her father's portrayal. Um, and that piece, I mean, obviously there's some uh, annoyance involved there, um, but I thought she struck a really good line between explaining who her father was and explaining why it was offensive and she was sad about it without just coming across as uh as you know knee-jerk ragey which i think she deserves to be knee-jerk ragey but you know uh she's also just really classy about like why why this is not just offensive but just unnecessary just cheap so uh i i think that's also a really good read on the subject well the other one other point that i guess we haven't made too that others have made is that we should keep in mind that this is not presented in the reality of the film. This is a fantasy sequence or a flashback from Cliff's perspective. And it's quite possible that the details as he remembers them are colored by the fact that he's remembering them. And like, oh, how did I how did I get bumped out of the business? Because I threw Bruce Lee into a car. That's why, you know, and when when the reality of what actually happened, who knows? Um, so there's a little bit more, there's ambiguity sort of built into it automatically just by the way that Tarantino kind of like frames that whole scene as, as his sort of his sort of daydreaming on top of the roof. Sure, but I tend to not buy that kind of thing. When you're talking about a narrative that comes from the hero of the movie, that comes from the the central character, the person that you're primed most to care about. And there have been study after study showing that no matter what foul behavior, like the central character in a movie gets up to, people are primed to see the protagonist as the hero. Uh, so you have this thing from his perspective, but you don't have any countervailing perspective. And it would have to be a pretty strong and specific countervailing perspective to balance out the fact that he is a hero and that, you know, Brad Pitt is a huge movie star and somebody mm-hmm. that people care about. So when you say, oh, well, it's just his perspective. I, yeah, okay, if you want to rosh him on that and give me another idea of what might have happened, like even even something as brief as the report on him having killed his wife. But when you say, oh, it was just a fantasy sequence, so it's not offensive, this this only bit of Bruce Lee we get in the movie. Like, I don't buy well, that. The, the other, I think that's the other, an excuse. There's not the only bit, too, because you also get a bit of him training Sharon Tate for her role in, uh, what's the name of the movie again? Uh, the, the, the Wrecking Crew. That's uh, so small, though. But it's there. It is a sweet bet, memory. Too, it's a different you know? memory than what we get from Cliff. Again, I don't want to belittle or undermine 
Hussein's complaints, which again, he is not alone <laughs> in making this objection. And, and I guess we lament, and there was so much to go into in this movie that, yeah. uh, that, um, that I, I'm sorry about the, that we didn't get into some of the stuff. But, um, and I don't want to be someone who, you know, especially a middle aged white guy to wave, right. wave away these complaints because I have my own point of view and it's limited, my own limitations. That said, I don't see Rick or Cliff as, I see them as deeply flawed characters. I think, yeah. I think the film asks us to see them as deeply flawed characters too, albeit mostly likable for the most part, but they're going to do and say, Stupid things. I don't feel the film is anti-hippie. I feel like yeah, we, we I talked, Clint, we I, I feel like about Rick, didn't Rick, we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like Rick is anti-hippie in a really comical way that does not reflect well on on his character. Cliff's not anti-hippie though. Uh, no, Rick fun. is. Yeah, I meant to say. Did I say Cliff? You said Rick. No, I just was yeah. saying like there's some yeah. new, there's, there's some, there's some nuance there. But no, I mean, uh, but yeah, I don't. I, this is a. But I think these are all really good points that deserve uh, unpacking and have been unpacked elsewhere, but, you know, we, we didn't necessarily get into them as deeply as we yeah, could have. The only thing the we episode. probably should have got tackled, but, dang, this film is at least, you know, something to talk about. Yeah, there's there's a sure. lot to talk about. Just touching on the audience thing. Mm. I mean, on some level, you, you can't hold Tarantino responsible entirely for how audiences react. And on the other hand, one of my all-time worst movie experiences was people reacting to Tar- Tarantino movie. Yeah. Um, my husband and I watching Pulp Fiction and a a very large, very crowded venue where people were chanting horrible, horrible things, uh, you know, and there was just like, there was an air of violence. There was, it was racist. It was sexist. It was gross. And I've had that kind of experience in Tarantino movies before. And I feel like a lot of the kind of content that he brings out, you know, the graphic violence and the sexual content and the the racially dubious content and the sexually dubious content, I can watch Jennifer Jason Lee get her, her face beat in in Hateful Eight and not in any way think that it's sexist. Like to me, she's a tough character in a tough situation being treated very toughly. And it's a strong and moving moment. Then I see it with an audience and they cheer when she gets punched. <laughs> and suddenly it's a very different experience. Mm. So to some degree, you do have to divorce yourself from how the worst audience members react to a film. And on the other hand, it's really difficult to not look at something like that and think, is he baiting these people? Like, which is, is he, how is he reacting to this? Like, is he also cheering that on? And that became a huge issue of debate. And he reacted to it in a typically defensive and dismissive uh, he's, way. He's the worst. He's the worst defender of his own movies. <laughs> well, that's, that's almost true of any filmmaker. Though. Yeah. They're always, you know, it's best filmmakers defend their own movies. Boots Riley is a really good defender of his own work. Uh, Boots Riley is a very good critic of other people's work i would actually well, i mean i want him to make like uh, 20 more movies but i would also like him to just start giving directors master classes in critique understanding critique taking critique <laughs> and responding to critique yeah <laughs> all it's of hard. these things people get they some get people they get, get attached some people get my it. experience with uh, just to wrap it up on once a time on hollywood and uh, you know i saw it twice at music box with very large audiences and and they laughed in all these moments that hussein points out uh, which again, yeah, it's it it can be uncomfortable, and you wonder why they're doing it. And they also laughed through the moment in the film that choked me up, which was uh, Rick's performance, uh, his mm-hmm. sort of final performance. I just thought like I was so overwhelmed by that, and what a beautiful thing that was. But the crowd thought that was hilarious, and it's just like it's hard to control what the audience does. I think the takeaway here is people suck. Just watch movies at home. No, it was, it was, it was kind of nice. <laughs> There's so many movies that it's great to watch yeah, with an audience. Really I just, is. God, I just saw the fugitive. I'm ready to be done with watching so Tarantino fun. movies with audiences. Yeah. Is yeah. The thing. Yeah. We always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations. If you feel so inclined, we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us. You can leave a short voicemail at seven, seven, three, two, three, four, nine, seven, three, zero, or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. That's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at another Manor House murder fest based around a classic game. No, it isn't the Monopoly movie or a Parcheesi movie you somehow missed. It's the comedy horror Ready or Not about a fatal game of hide-and-seek. Look for that next Tuesday. Or better yet, subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. Even better still, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net. Follow us at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow or follow us on Twitter at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, why don't you just go home and sleep with your wife? Ah!